Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm not just writing history, I'm making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources because I always check footnotes. Hello, I'm Casey Callahan and I'm with the historians on Housewives today bringing you our first inaugural episode, um, the Historians on Housewives podcast, which functions at the intersection of history and Bravo uh, to build a community between scholars and fans of the Bravo shows by discussing, by discussing the historical context that shaped the experiences of the Bravo liberties, the episodes, and the series arcs that we've come to love. Hi, I'm Jessica Millward, Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. I'm very happy to be here and have to have you here with us on our first inaugural podcast. And Max Spear, just Max. I don't have all those nicknames. <laughs> uh, yet, not yet. Um, and yes, welcome to Historians on Housewives. So I would love for us to introduce ourselves to you and share with you how we got to Bravo and what it is that we work on before launching into our very first episode. They're all looking at me, so I guess it's me. Um, So I took a job at the University of California, Irvine, at the same time that the um, Orange County Housewives was starting their season, their their, um, series. I said, here I find myself in Orange County. Let's see what these women are talking about so I can understand this place where I have landed. Um, My everyday life looks nothing like the Orange County housewives, and I feel very cheated. Nonetheless, I was hooked, so I started watching other Bravo shows. In terms of my day job, I teach classes on slavery, U.S. history, and black women's history, all of which are very heavy subjects. So I like turning to um, Bravo to let my mind do something else. Little did I know I would be haunted, teased, intrigued by some of the storylines and how it relates to American history. I had a really interesting route to Bravo and a career as a historian. I lived with three 
guys in college. And it was really interesting because one of them was always watching ETV and Bravo. And um, that's kind of my first introduction. And I feel like I came in a few seasons into Orange County because I remember meeting Gretchen Rossi first thinking, this woman is very blonde and they're having a tanning party. What is happening? And um, <laughs> as I went through college, I, I realized that one of my dearest friends uh, ended up moving um, from working at NBC to working for the Bravo side of NBC. And then I felt like watching Bravo was just, you know, part of good friend duty. And um, as I got in, to graduate school, Bravo really became an outlet as a space to do something that wasn't working and reading all the time. So it's become my addiction. And I teach classes on women's history, African-American history, U.S. surveys more broadly. And I study uh, feminism and social movements and uh, conservative women's activism in the 20th century. I probably have the most boring story of the three of us in terms of coming to the housewives. Um, I was born in Orange County. Um, I remember in 2008 when uh, I started seeing places I knew on primetime television. And there were these very eccentric, uh, loud women who were um, taking us behind the gates which was uh, both new and extremely familiar for me, watching television as a young man, I guess, uh, embarking on um, grad school for the first time. And um, like both of you, I did not come to... I, I came to the Housewives because um, I needed an outlet for my work, which is on um, the early American carceral state in colonial New York and um, I've been hooked ever since ever since the first woohoo Vicky um, and I met when I met uh, Casey in graduate school uh, I immediately was like oh you like housewives as well like we're gonna be together for a while because this is my yeah we can't agree like, on yeah. music or just about anything else but Bravo television is a constant uh, yeah, Housewives Forever. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're doubling into the history and forming Southern Charm. If you're not familiar with the show, Southern Charm follows the day-to-day -day lives of young elite socialites with deep roots to Charleston, South Carolina. And when we say elite and deep roots, we mean deep roots dating back to the founding of the South Carolina colony. I'm Thomas Ravenel, and I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. My family came here in the 1680s, and we've been a presence here ever since. I live in the south of Broad section of Charleston. It's probably one of the wealthiest neighborhoods per capita in the country. In 2007, Ravenel was indicted on federal charges of conspiracy to distribute cocaine, and Don Ledwell alleges that he sexually assaulted her. Bravo cut Robin Ravenel from the show in 2018, however, and his former girlfriend and mother of his children, Catherine Dennis, remains on the show. She's pretty good looking. She's a scion of two of the most powerful political families of South Carolina. And Catherine Dennis is the several great granddaughter of John C. Calhoun, 
Yes, that John C. Calhoun, former vice president of the United States, former senator of South Carolina, and one of the main people leading the charge for the South to leave the Union and hastened the Civil War. I definitely have a kindergarten crush on Catherine right now. I think she's really sweet. I've never hooked up with anyone with purple hair before, and I'm kind of interested. Now, does she live here? She lives on her family's plantation, I think. Well, that means if you marry her, someday that would be your plantation. Marry, marry. Oh, I get it. So we're talking about marriage now. That exchange between two of the show's protagonists, Craig and Cameron, about sums up what you need to know about the Southern charm. It's power and privilege. It's Southern white masculinity and fem- femininity, and the legacies of slavery in South Carolina are on display. I feel like this particular exchange that's happening between Craig and Cameron is just making my um, head go like, bing, thinking of Stephanie Jones Rogers' new book about slaveholding mistresses, right? And, and, you know, just the amount of power that white women, you know, wealthy white women could have in the South in a place like Charleston, South Carolina. Excellent point. I think that many times we have this um, kind of romantic view, not not we in this room, but America writ large has this romantic view of what slavery looked like. It was encapsulated in Gone with the Wind, and it was in, uh, something from a different era. But for those of us who study slavery, we know that power dynamics were present in every single exchange. So I would agree with you about that. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Well, and I feel like as you watch the show, it's this constant push-pull between the men and the women on the show, really, in terms of who's um, who's in charge and who has uh, kind of the power within these dynamics. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting the ways in which certain cast members come in and out of the spotlight. Um, and it is, it is interesting that there's, um, you know, Craig Conover who is a part of that exchange with Cameron, he's actually f- from New York. So he is relocated to the South. And it's interesting how many times he's kind of at the bottom of the pile, so to speak, in, in a way that some of the other cast members aren't who have been rooted in Charleston for generations. We'll go to an easy one first, which is no yelling. The question is, do you break the rule and does your partner break this rule? Ready? One, two, three. So... Oh, okay. So you think you both break the rule, and Craig was giving you a pass on that. So you don't feel that she ever yells in the relationship? No, but her definition of yelling is so skewed, it's not even funny. She's like, stop yelling. And I'm like, I'm not, I was talking in this volume, but it was stern. If your voice is not an inside voice, you're yelling. And I don't, it's aggressive, I don't like it. And his excuse was that he was from the North, and that's how they talk. It is how we talk, we're louder people. Being from the North doesn't give you an excuse to be an asshole. They treat um, him like a carpetbagger. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could say that. But I think you can. They for, would say that. For the, They would say that. For those of you that don't know the history of the Southern United States, the carpetbaggers came down after the Civil War and were selling, particularly free people, uh, promises. Promises and really broken dreams. They were basically taking advantage of the fact the South South's economy had collapsed. To that point, I feel like I need to stop and go back. One of the things that we didn't mention is most of the cast members are actually uh, descended from major slaveholders from South Carolina. So when Casey talks about the push and the pull between masculinity and femininity, 
we're also there's also a kind of a ghost haunting the script and that's how did these people come into their wealth what kind of um issues can we see that echo from 2019 that reach all the way back into the 19th century so it's very interesting you don't see black people on the show but you can see the presence of enslaved life or really kind of the mindset of slavery or pro-white ideology if you will is that too strong? well no and it's you know this is the other fascinating thing is that even if on some level they would consider craig to some extent as a carpetbagger consciously or unconsciously Craig is also really vocal in the season that Thomas runs and doesn't win his race for state Senate, that Craig goes to cast a ballot for Thomas Ravenel because he goes, well, we're really different except for politically because politically we're like the same person, right? So it's this interesting um, moment, right, where he's both so different because he's not from Charleston, but he's holding on to very similar, if not identical, political values, even though I'm not so sure how much any of them necessarily interrogate what that means. Perhaps Thomas and his father do more than others, because um, they've had some choice moments on the show, like the clip we're going to play right here. But before that, it's time for the Bonko Party. So our Bonko Party is our game section because we like to have fun and play games. So today, this is kind of, I think about this as, um, I'm calling, I'm thinking of this as like my all-stars. Um, not quite a would you rather, but you know, there are these broad questions. I'm going to put you on the spot and hopefully you have an answer for me. So. For our first question, and feel free to play along in your car or wherever you are listening to the podcast. If you could pick one housewife or other Bravo celebrity to guest lecture for you, who would you pick and why? That one's easy. Hands down, Michael Rappaport, the Bravo celebrity we all want to be. He gets to sit on the stage with Andy. He gets to read the housewives of their own for their own filth. He gets to have a back and forth with Kenya Moore. I think if he came into the classroom, he'd be both personable and able to break down these hard concepts that we see on The Housewives. So without a shadow of a doubt, Michael Rappaport. And and do you think you would give him a specific lecture topic? Like what would his theme be for the class? You know, I think he would be able to handle toxic masculinity and he'd be able to read some of the men on the show in a particular interesting light. I mean, he's an equal opportunist Reader, if you will. That's amazing. I I love, I would so be there for a class where Michael Rappaport talks to us about toxic mas- masculinity. So when we reach out to Michael Rappaport's people, I'm just saying that, you know, perhaps, perhaps. The wish list. <laughs> the wish list. Hi, Michael, call me. <laughs> um, I think I, okay, I'm going to backtrack this. It would be a class that was designed to teach students to research. So they would be going to local archives, maybe writing like one research paper. And the housewife that I would want is Sonia Morgan. She is really passionate. About About the Morgan letters. Yeah, about the Morgan (laughs) letters. Do not touch the Morgan letters. Yeah, I will play that clip in here. (laughs) She took you today to the Morgan house because that was like a peace peace treaty. I said, look at these antiques. And Dorinda put her paws all over these letters. You go in that house. You don't touch those 
like she could probably give you some good tips on things not to do at an archive that too but likewise i think that because we are all historians um since max brought it up he could actually talk to her about the archival process and what is selected for um preservation remember when they went to the morgan house there were a range of things but she wasn't necessarily happy with everything however she was very clear do not touch the morgan letters. Well, and there's been other episodes where people have come and taken treasured Morgan family objects out of her New York City townhome for preservation, right, to move into that museum and other locations. So she probably would have a lot to say on restoration and what this looks like behind the scenes. And she would look fabulous doing it. Absolutely. Without without question. Okay. My pick. I feel like it might be a little controversial. I don't think we necessarily spend enough time with students or even our peers talking about how we're actually going to get things done and plan out our lives and our time and still find work-life balance. So I want a guest lecture from Teddy Mellencamp, our accountability coach. And I feel like Teddy Mellencamp needs to come in and talk to us about how to realistically schedule our time so that we make it to work. We have time with our families, but we've still finished our assignments and gotten things done on time. And I do think it's a, I think it's a life skill that's hard to teach. It's hard to learn. I don't think a lot of students come into college having a good concept of um, how to allot time or even how to keep a life balance. And I think it's something that faculty members and graduate students really struggle with too. Well, how would you do, how would that work? What happens if she comes into your class and suddenly she engages in mean girl culture? What happens if she's trying to teach what she's born to do, but maybe there's a little Kyle personality in the class that she bonds with. How would you regulate that? Or would you just let her go at it? With students? Yeah, I mean, why not? (laughs) I I see two different Teddies. I see like potentially mean girl Teddy when she's with Kyle, but I feel like work Teddy where she's creating this huge empire of accountability coaching is, is, I mean, it seems like she's consulting people for a lot more than just how to lose weight or get fit, right? And so it does seem to me that she does have some sort of platform for how to think differently about your time management. At the very least, you could give us a pep talk. I could always use a pep talk. Yeah, at least it's a motivational speech for you can get through this semester. <laughs> right, that day when you're just in footnotes and editing, you can mm-hmm. do this. Yeah. Can I? <laughs> One step at a time, I what? think, as Teddy Mellencamp would say. Why are you calling me right now, Teddy? <laughs> I'm in the middle of footnoting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she'd be checking in on your accountability. Yeah. But like I said, it's, I think it's a controversial pick, but I do think it's an important skill. No, I can support you on that pick. I I just, yes, I will just support you on that pick. (laughs) I mean, there's other housewives that I feel like would be great at that, too. But, I, you know, but since Teddy has her own business, I feel like maybe she has some different tips and tricks. Okay. Ready for your next question? I think so. Me, too. What combination of three housewives or other Bravo liberties would make 
for the most exciting coffee date. So if you could have coffee, you're just handpicking your three housewives or Bravo celebrities. Who, who, what would that combination look like as you sit at a table for four? I would invite Camille Grammer just so I can hear her talk about the morally corrupt Faye Resnick. Um, I would also want to hear about Camille's views on, you know, kind of Kelsey's life since they, they have they are no longer together. I'd like to hear her triumphant story of remarrying someone. So I would like to hear from Camille Grammer with her. I don't know. I, I wonder if she and Luann would kind of be, Luann from New York, I wonder if that would be more about coffee being thrown on one another and less about a coffee conversation. So my number one pick would be um, Camille. Maybe it just needs to be me and her. Who would you have, Max? I mean, my go-to would be Dorinda uh, from New York Housewives. Because she's all elbows. When she gets into a story, she, like, really gets into the story. Okay. She punches it. Um, I wouldn't want to have the same sort of um, discussion on about her views on particular things. Like, Camille Grammer, I think would be an excellent person to talk to with regard to, like, Kelsey Grammer and his, um, at least what she has revealed on the show regarding his sexuality. Mm -hmm. Discussions about, like, what's considered to be homosexual now, what's heterosexual, right? How he presents himself. She would be a fascinating study. Um, I mean, Dorinda would be great for talking about politics, probably. Talking about, yeah, and I'm really a fan of her elbows. (laughs) And her elbows. <laughs> yeah, I that scene where she was screaming clip, clip, clip was iconic. Um, I would like to have front row seat at a coffee shop to that. I think that Kenya Moore, as much as she can be a lightning rod, I think she would also be perfect having a coffee conversation for that reason is because she doesn't necessarily get her elbows in there. She gets her feet, her toes. She gets in there, and she's going to, you know, give you the tea. And I also think that she is very, um, she can talk her way out of anything. Mm-hmm. And she'll twirl. And it. she will twirl. So, you know, it will be it will be a day that will be gone with the wind fabulous. So I think that would, I mean, that would be worth the $2 for coffee, right? Yeah. <laughs> Probably, I mean, keeping with the Housewives of Atlanta, probably candy be really interesting well that's when i'm gonna be nosy so i probably would go with candy too Mm -hmm. do you think she would given that she has a nighttime show candy cuddle nights Mm -hmm. and she has a sex toy line do you think that she would put up parameters about what we can discuss because i have questions i have a lot of questions i wonder i mean i just need to ask her about um tlc I, I could stick a, stay away from talking about sexuality if that's like... The sex dungeon. You want to talk about TLC. Yeah, I want to talk about how she... I, I mean, I would immediately get into the financials. Mm-hmm. How much did you make for Scrubs? Mm-hmm. What was that like? Right. To hear that every day for years, decades even. It would become really... Um, and maybe she wouldn't want to talk about that. That might be off-brand for Candy, too. But the sex dungeon would definitely be hot. <laughs> Sex Dungeon would be interesting. Now, see, I would, wow, I like Candy for her business acumen and really how she handles some of the women and how she handles her mother, right? Mm-hmm. I think she gets a medal for handling her own mother. But I have to be honest, if I had to have coffee with um, Candy, I might want to venture into her friend, friend zone, and ask um, uh, Tiny 
Tiny Harris, if mm-hmm. she would join. Then we could talk <laughs> about TLC, but maybe Tiny will bring the kids with her so we could see, like, Major or or um, Eris Harris or, of course, T.I. But, um, yeah, Candy would be good. Mm-hmm. Candy would be really good. We'll be a third person, you think? Let's see. Yeah. I got Sonia. I've got Kenya. Tiny no, doesn't no. count. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, tiny, tiny totally counts because they oh, did yeah. the candy special. Yes, tiny counts. Yeah, tiny yeah. definitely counts. Did you pick a third? I didn't pick a third. I haven't gotten that far yet. Um, would you bring a house bro? Should we bring a house bro uh, instead of a housewife? Who you think, Maurice or no? <laughs> <laughs> Maurizio. Maurizio. Let me say it differently. Maurizio. Yeah, Maurizio. I might pick Maurizio. He looked like he was having a really good time in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. He did. Yeah. He seems like he laughs a lot. So, yeah, if I was at coffee and I had to pick a house husband, it'd probably be Maurizio. I would have to have Cynthia Bailey at my coffee. Well, yes, I was saving her for uh, happy hour drinks. That wasn't a question, but I was saving her for happy hour <laughs> drinks. <laughs> she is... My absolute favorite, like, I just find her to be just so amazing. So I can't have coffee without Cynthia Bailey. I kind of would be interested in coffee with Brooks. Because I want to get all of the dirt. All of the dirt. Do you think you could trust what Brooks is saying? I don't know, but I'm sure if Brooks said no, Don would say yes. I'm telling you, Don just did a tweet just <laughs> oh, last week. Did you see it? Tell us, tell for the listeners. Let's remind them. I'll pull it up. Who? I'll talk about who Don is while I pull this up. Um, Don is Vicky's second, second husband. They're divorced. They divorced because she left him for a guy named Brooks, charming fellow who and and Vicky. If you don't know, is called her nickname for herself until very recently was the OG of the OC, and now she's recently been uh, demoted. Right. So Vicky was demoted, and there's been this backlash and outcry on Twitter. How could they do this to her? And so there were a lot of tweets going back and forth. But I will say that Don Don receives the best tweet response award um it was a classic i feel like my third person okay so if i had cynthia and fingers crossed brooks i feel like that would just be so fascinating i'm kind of leaning toward dolores catania as number three i was really really touched by um her last season of new jersey just watching now multiple seasons of her relationship with her ex-husband that she lives with and she's trying to get a new life together with a new boyfriend and her son's growing up and in college and um but she you know she's working with charities in New Jersey um for battered women and children and that I I found her to have a really kind of an emotional um story arc last season and I feel like um it would make for a really interesting um, coffee to hear about all of those life experiences and how um, that really kind of shapes her stance on what loyalty looks like, right? Because the New Jersey women are all about their loyalty. 
right? And and I find it until so until they're not until they're not right. And so it's this interesting like how does Dolores stay that loyal in that situation with an ex husband that ran out on her and did her really wrong? So I don't know. I feel like that might be interesting. So Dawn. So for some background on this tweet, Vicky left on. Um, after a very long marriage, she he adopted her two kids from a previous marriage, and they had a. I mean, it was a fairly messy divorce on Bravo, uh, that played out on Bravo, and she left him for a guy who goes by the nickname Girth Brooks. Ew. Yeah. Ew. Ew, ew is ew. right. Ew is right. And Vicky did everything for books. She got his teeth fixed. Um, <laughs> he lived with her um, for a very long time. She paid for everything. This all played out on the show. And one of the things that she used to say to slag Dawn was that she would pay. She had to pay alimony to him. And I don't know if this is true or not. We're not in the room, the courtroom with them with the divorce lawyers or anything. So I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but she really dragged him through the mud. And then Brooks was found out to be um, in the midst of a cancer scam, or at least that's what's alleged. I'm always worried that we're going to get sued. <laughs> so I just want to say it's at least alleged. But on the show, they're very clear that this was a cancer scam, that Brooks was at the helm of it. And there's still kind of a question mark up in the air about whether or not Vicky knew what she knew, how much she knew, when she knew it. But eventually she left Brooks and started dating um, an Anaheim poli- a former Anaheim police officer named Steve Loge, um, who maybe someday we will do a show about Steve Loge and his failed uh, electoral campaign. Does he pronou- pronounce it Loge or Lodge? Oh, that's a good question. So I feel like it was just Steve Lodge is how he pronounced it. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Okay, Steve Lodge. Apologies. Could be wrong. Anyway, so they recently got married in the or Bahamas. No, engaged, I thought. No, they. I think they also got, maybe they didn't. I thought they just got engaged. So they recently got engaged uh, in the Bahamas, and John's tweet uh, congratulating the happy couple was congratulations to Vicky and Steve. As long as my alimony payments keep coming, I'm thrilled for them both. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> See, I didn't realize that was in response to them being engaged. I thought that was in response to her being moved from OG housewife to friend of the cast. I thought that's what the tweet was about. I too. know yeah. this tweet. See, this is where citations come in. This tweet was from <laughs> April 26th. Interesting. Oh, yeah. so then it was the engagement. Yeah, it was. Because I feel like that was the whole push, right? That she was that, that there was the rumors that she was going to be demoted from the show, and so I felt like there was all those articles about Steve has to propose to her soon, so that she has a story arc, right? I think Radar Online or one of those outlets um, posted this tweet as, as part of like a longer story telling about the downfall of the OG of the OC. Wow. Yeah. Wow is right. Okay. Wow. So you, is that your three? Last one now. This is the big one. This is why this is the finale okay. question for the games. If Bravo did their own version of MTV's road rules, which housewife franchises 
would you pair in teams together? So we're talking about two teams, right? So two franchises per team. So really, what are the four franchises, right? And how would you pair them? All, does that include season or or how many people from a given franchise? Um, I mean, if, if you know exactly what season, so you know which cast you're talking about, that's fine. I was kind of thinking the current seasons as they stand, like the current cast. Yeah. Okay. We could do it that way. Yeah. Might date it, but yeah, we could do it that way. Okay. I thought about this a lot. I know exactly which two teams I would pair together. Okay. My dream team would be Atlanta paired with New York. I feel like that is a lot of brains. And I actually feel like both casts would be um, like very scrappy and competitive as like one ultra team. And I feel like I would love to see them take on the combination of New Jersey and Dallas. I was going to put New Jersey and Dallas together. New oh! Jersey, New Jersey and Dallas would be a good one. I think we're all in agreement. New Jersey and Dallas on one side. I don't agree with the other one. But Whoa. But yeah, New Jersey <laughs> and Dallas on the other side. I would go with Orange County because they're doing a lot of those rope climbs and like They didn't do courses. it well. No, but they have the most practice. <laughs> Who would you put with Orange County? <laughs> Who would you put with them? Um, probably Atlanta. I would agree. They probably have the most. Um, they probably think the quickest on the fly. Hmm. That's who I would go with. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Atlanta definitely would th- think the quickest on the fly. I mean, I feel like Nini would have to be team captain. Like Tamara would have to move over. Yeah. But Tamara also... Or, or that team's not competing. <laughs> Tamara also owns cut fitness. Like, I feel I mean, like true. they have training apparatus. I just don't know if Tamara likes not being top dog, but, like, Nini is I don't top know. dog. But is Nini? I mean, I don't, I support don't for her is waning. I mean, she had the reunion this past season, which, you know, I felt very s- sad for her mm-hmm. because she's in the middle of something. Um, I feel that, you know, she needs to do a little bit of inward work before she can be a leader. But you definitely want her in the foxhole with you. Uh Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I would would actually put um, Potomac somewhere, right? Because Giselle, she's sneaky. She's sneaky. (laughs) Karen will look you in the eye and she will say to you, this is what happened, even if it didn't. But she will she will go down on the sword. And I guess if to spice things up, because what happens if like someone just doesn't want to participate? I really think that any housewives put would be great. Any housewife season, any cast would be great. Put up against basketball wives. Ooh! Now, if you don't watch basketball wives, you let me let me hip you to it. We have Shawnee O'Neal, the former wife of um, Shaq. We have a few other people on the cast, but imp- most importantly, we have Tammy Roman. And Tammy was on one of the first seasons of uh, Real World, and then it went to Road Rules. I just feel like we need to have basketball wives in there for legitimacy, because then the competition can get really dicey. I didn't realize we could go outside franchise. We can't, but I, I we can do whatever we want. <laughs> well, I suppose that Potomac pick is interesting, right? Because Robin Dixon has to yes. has to have had picked up some basketball moves at this point after all of her uh-huh. years 
with one, but mm-hmm. not with one. Good point. So I guess we're not going with the Real Housewives of Orange County. Well, or with Basketball Wives. I mean, Basketball Wives are the most, um, they probably have the most skills to bear. I think so. That yeah. would be formidable competition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I went outside the boundaries of the questions, but, you know, at this point we don't have money to pay anyone for um, their, their <laughs> being on our imaginary show. So This is fantasy real world road rules, so, you know, you can do whatever you want. So does that conclude Bongo? Yeah, our Bongo party was concluded. Yay. Woo, Bongo party! <laughs> so we spoke a little bit about Catherine Dennis as being one of the several great-granddaughters of John C. Calhoun and kind of the legacy that that obviously um, leaves. Um, but Catherine Dennis was came on the show the first season as, as kind of more of a minor character. She was younger than everybody else. Um, the men were all kind of fawning over her, so much controversy, and she ended up with Thomas Ravenel, and they have been on again, off again. She's had two children by him. Um, Thomas uh, and Catherine have been going through years now of um, court orders and and court appearances trying to figure out their parenting and um, visitation agreements, uh, which is looking pretty dicey for Thomas right now because of the allegations he's facing um, for sexual assault. Um, But Catherine, for a while, had hardly any visitation rights because um, she tested positive for marijuana. Um, And so... <laughs> so Thomas um, ended up taking the kids away from her, and so these seasons have have kind of been tracking um, this tumultuous relationship, and really, it's kind of in a lot of ways become a show about how the rest of the cast is relating to Thomas and and Catherine's struggle, right, and the ways in which. Um, you know, Catherine has had this uphill battle in terms of um, people's perception in Charleston about kind of, um, how do I say, like a like a soiled woman or, you know what I mean? Like um, that they're treating her like, um, you know, she's not really a lady, right? And how that... A woman of ill repute. Yes, mm. an, a woman of ill repute, so to speak. And so... Um, you know, this is our first season right now without Thomas Ravenel. Um, Bravo's cut him from the cast because of all of his legal issues. Um, yet it's interesting that the idea of of Thomas, right, and Thomas still being peripheral in these people's lives is still affecting the show in a lot of ways. So with that background, contemporary information on Catherine Dennis, um, I think this is the perfect time to go to Jessica for today's Historians on Housewives lesson. Okay, so I think that Southern Charm provides the perfect opportunity for learning how to do family history. I I kid you not. That is because, like we have said, three cast members come from very wealthy and famous families. So 
Today, I want to talk a little bit about Catherine. We've already talked about her great, great, a few times great (laughs) grandfather, uh, John C. Calhoun. Because Calhoun was so famous, he left written records. Most of us don't have family members that left written records, but we will use this, we'll use the Calhoun family as a way to show you how you could actually do some kind of research. First of all, let me say that every document, everything you find, every scrap that you think that might not be important, all weaves together in a particular way. So just because you don't think you have enough on your family, don't, don't believe that. Don't believe that. So, for example, John C. Calhoun was a very skilled orator, and he gave a speech in 1840 um, in the U.S. Senate called On the Slavery Question. And here he states, On the contrary, the Southern situation regards the relation as one which cannot be destroyed without subjecting the two races to the greatest calamity. And the section to poverty desolation and wretchedness. In this conversation, this is me now, not him talking, he's talking about what would happen if slavery were to be um, eradicated from the South. And he's inherently saying that um, the African-American community not only could not provide for themselves, but this would also rip apart the Southern economy. How does this link to family history? Well, actually, it shows us in some ways what some elite people might be thinking at the time. This will send us on kind of a paper trail to look at maybe letters that Calhoun has written. I'm getting the look from the producer. Am I getting the look? No, no, no. Maybe letters he has written. Um, It's easier to do family history on famous people, right? For example, you can just do a quick Google search, and we would be able to look at an 1840 census to see who was in John Calhoun's family. There's he, there's his wife, there's extensive children. And also by 1850, if we look at the U.S. Census record, we can see how many people he owned, okay? And the U.S. Census records are very easy to find. Many people think you only need to go through Ancestry.com, but in fact, you can find them at any of your local libraries. You can find them at any universities. And for, in some cases, there's online databases for U.S. Census material. There's all kinds of little family history facts that I would love to tell you about. But you can find out more about Catherine Dennis's family history in particular by visiting our Patreon account um, and Following, following us on Twitter, where, we'll be, where we will be speaking more about family history in a big kind of way. And most importantly, if you're interested in your own family history, you should check out our website, Historians on Housewives, because we do give free family history consultations. Now, isn't it true, Jessica, that you could just go to one of the National Archives and and look up information on a relative, depending on which location you're at and what it is that they house. You can. In fact, for example, let's talk, talk about where I'm most familiar, Washington, D.C. and Maryland. You can go into the National Archives, either in um, D.C. or in Maryland, and you could, if you knew the year your your ancestor lived, if you know the county that they lived in, you can just search for them in a database. The other thing you can do, which is which people don't realize, is if you know the state they were born in, you can also go to the state archives and pay someone to do a search on your ancestor. 
I mean, so for example, you can't necessarily, if you can't find anyone who's presently living, right? You can't find anyone mm-hmm. who's presently living because there's, there's, um, you know, privacy clauses and what have you. But for example, in the state of Maryland, if you knew that your family member lived in 1850, you go to the Maryland State Archives. Shout out to them; they, you know, they're invalu- they were invaluable in helping me write my first book. You can go to the Maryland State Archives, and for a fee, they will look up what they can find on your ancestor. I think what people misunderstand about doing family history is that the librarians. The people at family history libraries, they're there to help you. They are so excited when you find whoever you're looking for. So, you know, I guess what we would say is people shouldn't be afraid of the word archive when you're thinking about family history. Um, It's not as overwhelming as you would think. In some ways, it can be very, very uh, rewarding. But I will step off my soapbox for a minute so we can get back to the actual show at hand. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Catherine Dennis? No. But then, yes, I think we'll be coming back to her. I just scratched the surface in terms of what we can learn about Calhoun by looking at his speeches and census records. You know, there's all kinds of things we can explore. I found, for example, his will and his wife's will on the Internet. Um, We can go closer to Catherine Dennis and look at some of her um, ancestors in the 20th century. So this will kind of be an ongoing thread. I want to roll it out slowly so that um, our listeners don't feel overwhelmed. So we've talked about speeches um, and census records for Catherine Dennis, but if we switch to a cast member like, say, Shep Rose, does that offer us a different kind of set of documents to talk about in terms of putting together a family history? You know, it does and it doesn't. Um, So Shep Rose is, (laughs) like, like Catherine Dennis, there's been information written on his family. So, for example, he is the descendant of the Boykin family. My name is Shepard Rose, and I'm from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. I come from an old South Carolina family called the Boykin family. In the 1700s, my family founded the town of Boykin, South Carolina. So they've been around since the beginning of the country. Oh! Yeehaw! Jester's dead! The state dog of South Carolina is named after my family, the Boykin Spaniel. And they were major landholders and founders of the town Boykin, South Carolina. In our peripheral research, our preliminary research, we found that a member of the Boykin family created a website um, with documents belonging to the Boykin family, including wills and inventories, um, where we learned not just about the particular family member, but again, we could see inventories for the enslaved people that they owned. And Max, you looked at some of those documents. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would want to shed light on? The first thing that comes to mind is, I mean, two things. One, um, the Boykin family themselves invented the Boykin Spaniel. Interesting. That's how prominent they are, that there's a dog named after them. Wow. Yeah. What I learned from looking through the extensive slaveholdings that were on the site was that um, the Boykins were part of the internal slave trade, a massive forced migration of enslaved people from the Upper South, so Maryland, Virginia, South Carolina, to um, the Cotton Belt or the Deep South, uh, states like Alabama, uh, Arkansas, Texas, um, were all places where planters... uh, 
forcibly moved enslaved people to work on massive cotton plantations that literally was spun into gold by the um, fact the mill factories in the north. Fortunately, or unfortunately, how you, however you want to look at it, yeah. um, again, there are many documents um, on the Boykin family. One of the key documents is a diary, Mary Boykin Chestnut, Boykin Chestnut, not Boykin. <laughs> Mary Boykin Chestnut kept a diary, and this is a very well-known diary. And in this diary, we learn about her life during the Civil War. We learned about the people that she enslaved. And there are so many other things we learn about Southern culture we would not have if we didn't have her diary. So in addition to census records, wills, and inventories, some people, some prominent people, often wrote diaries. Now... When we start dealing with people who weren't literate, it gets a little tricky. It gets a little tricky. But um, we should also say that some people in some church denominations might have left oral histories where someone would ask them questions and someone would transcribe it. Or when we have voice recordings, they would record, um, you know, they would record basically an interview. But if we were to review the documents today, we've looked at census records. We've looked at speeches. We've looked at um, wills and inventories and then diaries. Those are five good places to start if people want to do their own family history. I also feel like we should note that the Boykin family website was an incredibly robust website that the family themselves put together. But it's recently um, not working anymore. Like you get an oops if you try to navigate to the Boykin family webpage. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that comes back online at some point um, because it was a really, really rich, robust source um, for looking at um, Shep's family and, and really kind of histories of slavery within that family. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about these kind of websites, because, sorry, one of the One of the great things about these kinds of websites is that family members can find one another. Um, If you do some of the big search engines and pay money to some of the big um, family history corporations, they have internal chats where people who might be looking for the Callahans of uh, California um, can connect with people who are also a Callahan who might be in in Washington D.C. So I see that the the Boykin uh, website is similar to a lot of other places where people are finding their own way to connect. The really detailed records they kept about um, all the people that they enslaved. Um, that you know, in the research of looking at these family histories. Southern Charmed and you know the recent happenings on the Real Housewives of Potomac it was so glaringly obvious right that Southern Charm is this very white show right these descendants of slave holders Mm -hmm. right that the wealth that the space they're in right um, was only made possible through slavery Right, but that is never really discussed on the show, right? I think as close as we get is Thomas's dad staring down the cameraman saying, I don't like Lincoln, right? And that's why he's giving his fives away as tips. You got like five bucks to leave her a tip? I like to get rid of those because there's old Lincoln. You don't like Lincoln? (laughs) Oh, Lord. 
Um, right. And so when you have this, <laughs> this kind of juxtaposition between Southern charm and it's, you know, play, it's airing in the same cycle as Potomac, right? As Giselle is trying to locate, you know, her family history at a plantation in um, Louisiana. In Louisiana, right? Um, what a disconnect that is, right? And the way in which um, I, I think that it's, um, in some ways, Southern Charm has become such a popular celebratory show, mm-hmm. but how problematic that is, right? When you still have people right now who have such trouble, you know, actually tracing their lineage because, you know, the institution of slavery has ripple effects through the generations, both in terms of, of African Americans themselves, but also, right, the wealth that is on Southern charm is still, you know, a direct line back to. Well, I think in some ways that's the point of Southern charm, right? It, it follows this idyllic tradition of Southerners being Southerners and slavery, again, is in the background mm-hmm. or the, ha- the workers are in the background. One thing I will say is um, that I appreciate about the episode of Potomac when Giselle went to the Whitney plantation and when she connected with um, her family members at a party for her father is that we actually see a black family, right? We see a woman doing the work of keeping contact with all her aunties and her grandmothers and what have you. And also they take this moving trip to the Whitney plantation because we are getting more advanced in how we do history. It is possible to trace uh, African-American lineage in a way that we haven't been able to trace before. And that's not just to say that, you know, many people think that if you do a DNA test, that'll tell you who you are. I often advocate that people do exactly what Giselle did. You go, you get on the ground, you walk around where your family lived, you tell stories, you trade stories um, with uh, other members of the community. And, you know, it just so happened that her family had a link to that particular plantation. And we happen to know about it because of because of her platform on the Housewives. But if other people went and, and wanted to engage in the work of walking around where their family came from, they'd be amazed how, how many details would just kind of fall into their lap. Not everyone wants to do that. Okay, not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone knows that they can do that. But... Um, we're kind of in this moment where more and more is becoming possible. So I appreciate the fact that Southern Charm is airing right at the time we have Potomac Housewives. Mm -hmm. It's like seeing both sides of that story in a lot of ways. It really is. And both sides of of historical memory, really. When they, um, I think it was in their opening season, in their first season, um, Southern Charm, played uh who would you be who would you rather date scarlet or who was the other plantation mistress on go melanie nelly yeah Melly. i'm so embarrassed that i know that gone with the wind yeah I'm it was scarlet and it was miss melly yeah and uh they and asked ashley Tom. wilkes <laughs> oh am i Ashley. Ashley Wilkes was the husband of Melly. That, that I know I that I need to be embarrassed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but they were um, asking Thomas, who would he rather date, Melanie or Scarlett? Is he more of a Scarlett man or a Melanie man? Guys, I have a gone with the wind question for you. What do you think would be a better match for Thomas, a Scarlett or a Melanie? 
Who's Melanie? Melanie was Ashley Wilkes' wife. Well, Scarlett was the bold. She went after what she wanted. She had chutzpah. She wasn't. Ran through husbands like exactly. water. Yeah. Melanie was more the reserve. Uh, yeah. Subdued. She gets run over. Scarlett. Why well, just choose one? Melanie has good ideas. Boop. That's Melanie. Boop. Scarlett. Boop. <laughs> but the real question is would you want a red? Or Ashley. A little bit of both, I think. A little bit good. of both. Ashley's just a big. I mean, come on, he's a wussy. <laughs> Why would Scarlett go for that whip? Maybe because he was stable. Yeah, but he still didn't go for what he wanted. When the world's turned upside down, people like Ashley Wilkes go straight to the bottom, okay? And people like Rhett Butler, people like this guy, people like me, we go straight to the top. Oh. I'm glad I'm on the right side of that one. Yeah. <laughs> You're lucky. I'm definitely a rat. Isn't that obvious? Yeah, and I think that that just really underscores like how even this historical memory can get used to to um, continue to inform um, reality TV. Continue to inform. I mean, it does re- uh, inform reality TV. It also. Um, if you're only watching Southern Charm and not Potomac, for instance, you get a very different view of what the antebellum South look like for the people living in it. You get this idyllic Hollywood-produced view of... Um, the Southern masculinity, Southern femininity yeah, that we opened up with. Yeah, the romance of the South, the old South. And with uh, Giselle's story, it becomes much more untenable to um, keep that idyllic view of the South mm-hmm. um, intact, at the very least. Can we go before? I would like to talk a little bit about Thomas's family history, mm-hmm. but I'd also like to pause and not literally pause, just pause for your editing. I, I would like to take this moment to talk about um, this tweet that we responded to um, within this week. Someone spoke about the South rising again. Mm. And can we talk about that for a moment? Yeah. That really got under some some people's skin, positively and negatively. <laughs> a person on Twitter, a fan of the Real Housewives of Dallas, um, said, Thank you, Jesus. The South has risen again on the Bravo TV app. It's getting close. Now, what? I guess that when this, when you think about the South rising again, it's going to have two, at least two different responses. I could see where some Southerners think this is great for African Americans like myself or people on the left side of history. I can imagine that was a harrowing, harrowing tweet, and so our um, hive mind, <laughs> our twitstorians, if you will, composed a tweet in response. And it was, drumroll. This tweet is more problematic than you'll ever know. But we do need a new season of Real Housewives of Dallas. Um, And I will say, uh, Leanne Locken liked that tweet. She liked both tweets. Um, And so, so it is problematic, nevertheless. I think that, like, she liked the initial tweet, but... I'm sure that what she... I couldn't imagine Leanne liking Leanne liking our tweet had she not been on board with like oh it's really problematic to say the South will rise again. I think 
if I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, I think that she was liking the fact that this person was like, Dallas is coming back. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but like, I don't think that you, that she could have liked our tweet if she was like, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong with the South rising again. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I, that was like the crux of, of the tweet that Max issued in response. Right. That like, yes, of course we're ready for a new season of Dallas, but, um, you know, this, this myth of the, of the South rising again, right, is, is really problematic and, and something that, um, a lot of people just don't let go of. And you, you gave some good hashtags to that. What did you include? Uh, lost cause myth. Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was that lost, it was that lost cause myth, right? That, um, I mean, I had a colleague who, um, shared with me that, you know, less than 10 years ago, she was taught, you know, in her home state, North Carolina, or maybe, maybe a little bit more than 10 years now, but, you know, very contemporary, right? In the 90s, she was taught that um, the Civil War was a war of Northern aggression (laughs) in her North Carolina school system, right? Which is, which is incredible to think about, right? (laughs) These narratives of, of Southern chivalry and, and the South that remains almost unshakable to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Speaking of these narratives that are unshakable, let, can we turn back to Southern quote unquote gentility and talk about Thomas Ravenel? Ravenel. I would love to talk about Thomas Ravenel. Your intro game is like to a new segment is on point. I need to say that like transition was hashtag all those years watching Harvey. And Charles. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag I learned from TMZ. Uh, <laughs> so Ravenel's wealth, his family wealth comes from the steel business. Um, well, his 19th century family wealth. But his family's history spans centuries in South Carolina. His family was also into politics. So if we go back to family history, we can make uh, we can read speeches made by his father, Arthur Ravenel. And like the Calhouns and the Boykins, we can trace Thomas's family in the census. But what I think Max and I found both very interesting as we were doing this research on on Thomas is that he presently, is it presently, owns Brooklyn Farm? Mm-hmm. And that used to be a slave plantation, not necessarily a slave plantation that his family owned, but the fact that he owns it now and it's mm-hmm. been restored. Um, I wonder, what do we mean when we say things have been restored? Has it been restored just the house? Um, well, and at one point he lived with Catherine at that plantation and that was a whole point of contention, right? Because, um, Ashley Thomas's newest girlfriend at points got to go on like romantic weekends with him to the plantation, right? So not only is it a restored plantation, but the plantation itself is, is used as this space of, of like Southern family and romance and wooing. Well, you know, that's a big thing in the South is you can get married on a plantation. There are plantation marriage packages. Oh, my God. That, you know, I mean, eh, <laughs> eh, I'm not from the South, so um, that's all I have is I won't be getting married there. Um, but I think that in terms of, like, just looking at architecture, architecture and public records about land, that also can be a way that you can piece together a family history. So when we looked at this farm, this quote-unquote farm, 
and its history has changed ownership many, many times. But we were able to look at um, records, land records, and see who might have owned the farm, you know, for example, in the 19th century. So just staying on theme, there's many ways that you could put your family's history together. In terms of Brooklyn Farm, can can I also mention in terms of Brooklyn Farm, that that is also the site of Thomas's polo matches. And um, and I think that it's important, right, that not only does the plantation then function as a place of romance and wooing and the family hub, but again, it's this kind of space for genteel white Southern men to express their gentility, right, and to have people watch them in that expression, the performance of this yeah. genteel lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Can you think of any examples uh, when Southern gentility was enacted during one of these polo matches? But oh, <laughs> well, it's like, um, you know, in the last season, the polo match, right? The men are, you know, coming to Thomas and making sure that Thomas thinks through his relationship with Ashley, right? Will Ashley be the appropriate girlfriend, right, or the long-term partner, right, for a man of his status in in the South, right, which is inherently, right, this act of gentility and thinking about how to maintain that kind of stature, right, and it's this kind of push-pull where it's like he's kind of trying to break up with her at the end of the polo match and everyone's left the plantation and they're inside the house at that point and she's like but I'm not giving up yet Thomas right and he's like clearly like oh it didn't really work because I was gonna try to duck out right now but you know and Thomas has never been great at breaking up and getting back together with girlfriends in general but it's this it really was this moment that displayed that um in some ways these relationships on southern charm are also about um a community relationship, right? That the, the, that the intimacy of, of a partner relationship actually affects the larger community as far as they're concerned because of the, of the power and the privilege that they all share. Mm-hmm. So Arthur Ravenel was a state senator in South Carolina, and he believed in 2000 that the Confederate flag should continue to fly over the state house. And um, he was interviewed about this and, you know, he was trying to defend himself as saying, well, I'm, I'm not racist because he said, quote, I, I sit next to um, or I work next to, quote, a very fine black senator. Um, but then he <laughs> referred to the NAACP um, who was leading the campaign to remove the flag from the state house as, quote, the National Association of Retarded People. Um, and that resulted in a major controversy. And so he ended up deciding he should issue an apology, but not to the NAACP. He apologized to, quote, retarded people for mistakenly associating them with the NAACP. Um, Great guy. So did his apology need an apology? So he thought he was doing something better by still labeling um, people who were challenged in a different way as retarded? I think he kind of left it at that to be like, oh, I didn't mean to assault you, community, right? He was really, he was, it was like this way of pivoting. Like, I really meant this against the NAACP. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have slandered you people with like mental disabilities in the process. Right. But slamming um, groups that are progressing, uh, progressive for African-American rights is still fine to do. 
Um, with that note, I want to talk about, you know, we know that the, the flag eventually, the Confederate flag eventually came down in South Carolina only because Bree Newsom, um, an African-American woman active in um, Black Lives Matter, climbed up the flagpole and removed it. And, of course, this created a lot of controversy. But um, what that did then do is create a domino effect where we see these um, bastions of Confederate um, legacies kind of toppling we're right in a movement now where people are removing um, monuments to Confederate soldiers and to, uh, and Confederate um, war heroes. To tie this back in, as I was doing research on John C. Calhoun, I was able to find actually a lot more information, more information than I even knew um, as someone who teaches 19th century history, because Yale University had um, a series of meetings to decide whether or not they should remove his statue from campus. So we're in this moment where um, the American mem- American memory is kind of being changed right in front of our eyes. And the cast of Southern Charm. And the cast of Southern Charm. He's directly in the middle of that. Well, and it's interesting because when John McCain was still alive in 2000, right, um, he played this in a a really interesting way that really gets to this issue of historical memory, but also about, you know, political expediency based on which part of the country you're in and talking to, right? At first, he didn't really want to take a stance on Arthur Ravenel. And then... He then went to say, oh, this is offensive, right? It's a symbol of racism and slavery. And then he realized that South Carolina's primary was critical, and he flipped. And he goes, well, the flag is really a symbol of heritage, right? And so playing both sides of that game, right, that how can it, you know, the symbol of heritage on one side, right, but offensive racism and slavery on the other, that these things really don't coexist together, right? You can't have both at the same time, right? Because you're creating inherently violent spaces. Right, and that's what I think that some people don't understand, that the, the, the these um, kind of iconic uh, artifacts, if you will, can have multiple meanings, and they do, in fact, have multiple meanings. But I think within those multiple meanings, right, then you have to make... Uh, really um, thoughtful decisions about how these things with multiple meanings will be displayed within a community, right? Like what their position within a community should be, right? And what does it mean um, if it's still front and center, you know what's a good example for that? <laughs> and a good example about, um, you know, what uh, memory and me, uh, memory and in this conversation, slavery and African Americans, how they should be portrayed. Uh, we forgot to talk about the very controversial Ancestry.com commercial. I don't know if we want to finish on Thomas. I feel like wrapping up with this Ancestry commercial that was pulled is, is really important because I feel like it pulls together these strands that we're discussing when it comes to slavery in the South that we see with Potomac and Southern Charm. So several weeks ago, Ancestry.com, it might have been several months ago, you know, at some point it's summer, classes aren't in, time doesn't have any meaning right now. But Ancestry.com ran an ad trying to hearken to African Americans to, um, you know, uh, patronize uh, 
Ancestry.com, learn about um, their own family history. The problem was it features an African-American woman who is, is this correct, owned by a white slaveholder? Am mm-hmm. I making this up? No. And what was their relationship? Well, wasn't the, it wasn't the slaveholder. We don't know their relationship, but that was probably awful, right? Okay. Um, she was running away with a white gentleman who's yeah. going to help her get north. But Ancestry wouldn't comment on whether or not this was an actual real person and a real story. right? They were Their answers to that were really, really vague. So it was really left unclear if this potential lover, as they were trying to paint him out in the commercial, was an owner or was not an owner. Either way, it's really problematic. And it's problematic for a lot of reasons. It's problematic because it insinuates that um, the only kind of relationships the black women could have under slavery were with these gallant white men who would, quote, unquote, help them to freedom as if enslaved people weren't trying to orchestrate their own freedom. Um, It was problematic on so many, so many levels. But Ancestry.com, you're right, they did not talk about in some ways the, the, the very um, the racialized dynamics that are going on in this conversation. And many people said, why can't she be running away with an African-American man? Mm-hmm. Why does it have to be this trope of a great white savior? Or that when African-Americans go to these sites like Ancestry.com, they're going to find these triumphant stories. And so often with these types of source, the sources that are left, wills, runaway advertisements, sale advertisements. Um, There is a lot of trauma for African-Americans going back to that past and to treat it as though it is something that is, you know... Idyllic. Idyllic, right? To go back to this theme of Gone with the Wind, that there can be this idyllic slave narrative almost. Right, I think this is an important part, and we'll we'll we can bring all of this together. Gone with the wind is this, you know, we only see the perspective of the whites whose civilization was destroyed by the by the northern aggressive uh, by the by northern aggression. Whereas when we juxtapose that with the ancestry dot com experience or or narrative, we're still not really seeing the totality of the enslaved experience. Uh, Max has a good point. When African-Americans go to do family history, it is often traumatic. Traumatic because there's the weight of slavery. There's the weight of the diaspora. um, Just in trying to understand um, their ancestors' experiences, they might hit a lot of roadblocks because, um, you know, people... People were property, and they might not necessarily um, have the same name if they were sold from place to place. So there's a v- so much trauma in doing African-American history. But as I tell my students, mm-hmm. I say that African-American history is hard. It is traumatic. But every once in a while, it is soul-defining. It is soul-defining. Not I wouldn't say always say triumphant, because that's saying that there's going to be this happy ending. But it is soul-defining. It speaks to people on a lot of registers. Um, And so I guess my other caveat, if if Ancestry hired me, (laughs) if Ancestry hired me 
um, as I've been trying to get them to do for a long time. If Ancestry hired me, the story would play out differently because often when you go to archives, if you go to the Family History uh, Library in Salt Lake City, Utah, I've been places where I've heard uh, genealogists and librarians tell people that they can't find their ancestors, their enslaved ancestors. And that's really not true. That's really not true. Again, we become more sophisticated in how we tell the story. So I guess what I would say about the commercial is because we become more sophisticated in how to tell the story and how to get the information, it would be necessary that the commercial itself would reflect more about what it is like to do African-American history. Well, an interesting thing that Ancestry did to try to defend themselves with this commercial was say, oh, well, it was meant to air in Canada. Right. That like as if there wasn't slavery in Canada. Well, that and also is if almost this unspoken acknowledgement that, yeah, that would be horrible for it to air in America. Right. But but so it's like almost this acknowledgement while not acknowledging that the commercial was problematic to begin with. Yeah, I, I, I can't save them on that one. I will say that um, just hashtag Afua Cooper's work, The Hanging of Angelique that actually talks about a slave woman who allegedly was running away with a white man. And, well, you know, they burned down Montreal. So I'm just saying that sometimes that's also how the story ends. Romantic ending. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for the coffee clutch. So the Coffee Clutch is our segment where the historians on Housewives advertise for scholars, academic publishers. Um, We'll be able to talk about people who are going to come on to future podcast episodes. And we'll give updates to our edited volume in the works. Um, If you want to participate in any of the many goings on with the historians on Housewives, um, you can find us at our website, historiansonhousewives.com. You can submit uh, to be a part of our edited volume or to be on a podcast. Maybe you want to write a blog or an op-ed for us. And you can find all of those submissions on our website. You can also find our swag on our website. And who doesn't like swag? We have hats. We have uh, baseball jerseys, long sleeve. We have women tees, women t-shirts, uh, t-shirts for women that are much more flattering. We have t-shirts for little children. We even have shirts for your dog, man's best friend. Mm-hmm. And even maternity shirts. And maternity shirts. So there is really something for everybody. We have mugs. We are scholars, so there's a quite, a, quite a few coffee mugs. Tote bags, aprons. Like, if you can think of it, we can make it. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at historiansh, and uh, we typically tweet um, episodes live, bringing up historical questions and featuring historical works that are connecting um, to the issues on Bravo programming. So in lieu of actual advertisements um, today, I'll say we have some really exciting episodes coming up um, featuring uh, Tanisha Ford, Takia Hamilton, Don Durante, along with many, many other scholars. Um, a big thank you to Dr. Joaquin Galarza for writing our intro music. Um, doctors Mark and Barbara Spear for being our first fans. Uh, Thomas McKenzie and others at the um, Faculty Center at Saddleback Community College who have helped us book recording space and answered all of our questions on how to do this. Ashley Ashe, 
And finally, this podcast was recorded at Saddleback's Faculty Center. And so just a huge shout out to Saddleback College and all the support that we've received from the students, faculty, and staff. We couldn't um, thank you guys enough for all of that support. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.